Hi, everyone. I'm Delilah Jones, your host today of Imagine Publicity on Air. I like to share featured guests from a variety of fields like authors, activists, and artists, and occasionally I'll intersperse some, some business tips for marketing for individuals and nonprofits. But today, in the 80s, Drugs were a very profitable commodity, even for governments who allegedly funded wars with billions of ill-gotten dollars. Pipelines trafficked cocaine into Americans who were snorting it by the ton, and Pablo Escobar was the well-known king of the cocaine trade and quite proud of it. So who is the real Mr. Big? We're soon to find out. My guest today is award-winning author Ron Chepisik, one of the kingpins of the true crime genre and the author of the recently released The Real Mr. Big. Happy to have you on air today, Ron. Great to be on, Delilah. Thank you. Well, before we begin talking about your new book, your background includes so much more than than writing true crime books. Fill us in about some of your other past projects and, and some of the illustrious people you've had the opportunity to interview uh, over your career as a journalist. Well, actually, uh, I always wanted to be a writer, but I wasn't going to be one of those people that said, I, wanted to, I want to be a writer, but never did anything about it. <laughs> So I didn't really get started in uh, in writing till I was about 35, and uh, I was in Ireland and I was a university professor at Southern University, and uh, I was on sabbatical. And uh, one day I um, I just decided I wanted to be a writer. I don't know. I can't. I was always trying to figure out how did that start, and I couldn't remember what triggered it. But anyways, I just started to be a writer. So I started writing magazine articles, and I I sold actually one on the Belfast Marathon. The first one they had, I sold it to an English publication, and I was really excited on that. So I came back to the U.S. I started to to work as a magazine writer, and a lot of rejection, you know, as a writer. And um, you know, I had you know dozens of rejections, and then uh, finally I got a big assignment from um, Modern Maturity, which is the uh, publication of the uh, American Association of Retired People. It's probably the biggest magazine in the world, and I got an assignment to do a, a, a profile of this. Uh, uh, Professor John Ho Franklin, a real prominent um, African American professor from Duke University, and I sold it. And uh, you know, I sold it for two thousand dollars back in the '80s. This is a lot of money, and that really set me off. And slowly but surely, I built a thing, and I ended up, um, you know, becoming a magazine writer. And uh, I uh, uh, took a lot of time. I, I went to 35 countries. I've interviewed uh, Yasser Arafat. Uh, I've interviewed three to four presidents of uh, Colombia, and Jerry Adams, a prominent um, um, uh, Republican, um, Irish Republican um, activist in um, in Northern Ireland, and uh, uh, I um, uh, got met a woman, got married. <laughs> uh, she was from Colombia, uh, Bogota. So I got interested in the drug trade then. When we used to go, and I used to get a lot of assignments because everybody was interested in the 80s and 90s because of Escobar and Medellin cartel, and uh, I wrote a book um, uh, called um, uh, Drug Lords, and it was on the Cali cartel, the successor to uh, Escobar's uh, Medellin cartel when he was taken down, and uh, that put me in, in crime, and uh, from there it just led uh, uh, to uh, writing about crime. I, I wrote uh, a book, uh, Gangsters of Harlem, and uh, then 
the publisher wanted another book, and I wrote one on Black Gangster Chicago. I started getting on on TV, and become, so I, I become a um, talking head on crime. And the next thing you know, I'm an expert on crime and all that. So uh, slowly but surely, that built up. And uh, before I knew it, I've had you know, I had, right now I, I sold over 41 books, 4,000 magazine articles. And um, I was getting out of it. I was thinking I wanted to write screenplays. And uh, so I was writing screenplays. I didn't think I'd write another book. And then one day in uh, May 2017, I got this email from um, this woman in um, in uh, England, in London. And she said uh, she was the daughter of uh, Jesus uh, Ruiz uh, Henao, the, the gentleman, real Mr. Big. And uh, he was getting out of prison pretty soon, and he wanted to know if I'd be interested in writing uh, his uh, his uh, collaborating with him on his autobiography, and uh, I didn't know anything about this guy. And uh, she sent me some links, uh, and so I checked the links out, and I couldn't believe how big he was. Uh, he was uh, described as the first billion-pound uh, cocaine kingpin in British history. One one law enforcement guy called him the Pablo Escobar of the United Kingdom drug trafficking. When he was busted, uh, the the price of uh, of, of uh, cocaine went up 50 percent. That showed you, how, you know, how much he controlled the market. And uh, I looked at this guy, and I said, you know, yeah, this would be really interesting. So I, I responded. I said, yes, I'd be interested in talking with your father. And he was in jail in England, and he called me uh, twice long distance, and we talked. And he said, well, I'll be getting out pretty soon. And, uh, uh, you know, I said, well, I, I'd, I'd be interested. So we waited, and uh, something got snagged in his um, in the um, – uh, legal process, and uh, he uh, uh, wasn't going to get out. So I was kind of disappointed. This is like uh, two years later, and finally I got an email from, from his, his daughter, and she said that he was getting out and that he'd be contacting me as soon as he got climatized. He had spent 18 years in jail. He went to, um, he went to jail um, back in the early 2000s, and uh, so he got out on October 10th, and uh, 1919, and went back, and then about a couple months later, he contacted me, and we agreed that I would come to Bogota, and I would interview him for the book, and so uh, he he was living in Armenia back then, um, the coffee-growing uh, region of um, Colombia, so he flew I flew him up to uh, Bogota, and we stayed in a hotel for a week, and I interviewed him uh, for like uh, uh, 25 to 30 hours of taped interview, and this was just before the COVID thing in January, uh, the, uh, the uh, last week of January, first week of, of February, and uh, COVID was just starting to make an impact, and lucky for me, I, I, I went because I never would have been able to, to interview him, and probably this project would not, be, would not have uh, evolved, and so uh, um, I came back and um, uh, put together a book proposal and send it out, and of course, <laughs> It was really hard because nobody was buying. You know, everybody was scared, and uh, that the publishing industry was on on hold. And but uh, uh, Wild Blue Press uh, was really interested in it, and they're a great publisher. I have you know uh, really uh, a great time you know, doing this book with them, and uh, we did it. And it took. Uh, I wrote it. I started it in October, and um, finished it in early February, and it's published here in April. So it took about six months, lower about six months. That, that's amazing that, that 
the story and and the publishing and everything came together so quickly. I guess, you know, with COVID lockdowns everywhere, people have a lot more time to get these things done. Well, let's backtrack just a little bit. Um, The Colombian drug culture. Uh, Let's talk about what was life like during the heyday of the cartels and Pablo Escobar. and, and, And I understand this is the time where Jesus grew up under under. Yeah. You know, the umbrella of all of these cartels in the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, he was born on um on um uh February twenty ninth, which is which means his birthday is March the first of uh of uh, uh, nineteen sixty. Uh so he's a little over sixty years. And uh yeah, and he he grew up uh, in um in uh, uh Armenia, which is the uh, uh the coca growing area of um of Colombia, and so you know, cocaine was a part of his life very early. But it, it was very Colombia is really dangerous. Um, when I was there, uh, you may have heard this term narco terrorism. Well, that was a term that uh, resulted from Escobar. He started this terrorist campaign. And uh, when I went there, uh, fortunately I had family there, so they took good care of me. But you know, you, you could get kidnapped for twenty five dollars. You know, and uh, somebody would, would just kidnap you and, uh, and make it a man twenty five dollars, and you pay it up, and they let you go. And uh, the guerrillas were really uh, a dangerous country. And uh, I, when I went to Colombia, I'd fly into Bogota, and I couldn't go uh, anywhere outside the city. And uh, so, uh, you know, it was very, it was very dangerous. And uh, uh, Colombians, um, uh, you know, had to live with this. And uh, this was essentially because of the cocaine, you know, the, uh, the demand for cocaine worldwide was creating this, uh, you know, wars between cartels that that fought for control of the drug trade. And uh, and Escobar went to war with the state in the uh, 80s, and uh, it was crazy. I mean, uh, you know, he, he bombed the, uh, the equivalent of the FBI, the headquarters, you know, killed uh, 100 people. And um, and uh, you know he, he uh, was finally caught in, in uh, 1993 in December, and um, uh, was uh, killed. And uh, that didn't stop it because the Cali cartel uh, had taken over the trade before that, and uh, so it was really um, uh, dangerous. And today, uh, when you go to Medellin, right? Medellin is one of the top retirement cities for Americans, which is incredible. Because when you consider Medellin was the the home of Escobar, and all that, and um, uh, it's a beautiful country. You know, I love love Colombia, and the people are really um, industrious. And uh, the Mexicans have taken over the drug trade today. Uh, the Colombians realized that they were too big. The Cali cartel and Medellin cartel were too big, so essentially they they just uh, hand off the, uh, the cocaine to the Mexicans, and the Mexicans bring it into the U.S. now. And uh, that's why we have all this uh, incredible violence today in Mexico, you know, which has turned into mm-hmm. the, the Columbia of the 80s. Well, yeah, that's very true. Well, speaking of Jesus, okay, so walk us through how he set up his business in the U.K. market and not necessarily the USA. Yeah. Why? What's the background there, and why did he make that well, decision? Yeah, and why didn't he just... Yeah, why didn't he just join one of the established cartels? Yeah, well, well that's very interesting uh, because um, uh, he said he, he would never deal drugs to the U.S. He said uh, he never even thought about it because he said he thought the, uh, the Americans were much tougher uh, in their law enforcement than the, the British were. Uh, 
And so at a very early age, uh, he made a choice. He said he wasn't going to go to the United States. And besides, there was too much competition there. You know, he had Escobar and all that. But the, uh, the British market was ripe, you know, for penetration. And so that is why he decided, you know, to go to uh, the U.K. And it was very easy back then to get into the United Kingdom. And uh, 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 what happened was um, uh, he had a load of cocaine that he was going to sell. And he spent a lot of money on it, and uh, it, the, the plane that was carrying the load blew up in the air, just blew up. And he thinks it might have been sabotaged, but he owed a lot of money. He owed a lot of money and uh, to the Sicarios, who were this um, uh, uh, contract killers. You know, that's how they made their money, they killed people. And uh, so they got him working for him, and uh, uh, he talked them out of, killing a couple of people to read my book i have a chapter called the sicarios and he talked to them but they were getting very angry because they were he was messing with their business and uh they were going to kill him and uh he was advised to get out of Colombia, and so he left in uh, 1985 he uh, he um uh left with his wife and uh went to the united kingdom and uh and uh you know uh, came in as a refugee and uh, and uh, went to work, and he wasn't really going to to do uh, uh, cocaine trafficking, uh, but he studied the market and realized that there was a demand for this sort of drug, and this demand would increase with time. And so he slowly but surely, uh, while he was holding a full-time job, uh, became a cocaine trafficker. So he basically set up his own little cartel business, you might say. Yeah. So yeah. who was supplying his cocaine? And I, I'm assuming it came from Colombia through contacts that he had there, yeah, correct? Yeah, he, he, he worked with uh, the, the Norte Valley Cartel, North Valley Cartel. Um, they were the third cartel, and they were pretty minor um, uh, players in, in the drug trade. But he worked with uh, with them. And uh, they, they were the ones that um, that supplied him with the cocaine, and um, they were they were competitors of, uh, of the Medellin and, and Cali cartel, and they were and they weren't that really that big back in the uh, when he first started. But by the time he was in in full um, uh, throttle as far as uh, being a, a cocaine trafficker, uh, they had become really big because they had replaced uh, the Medellin and the Cali cartels as the, as the big uh, drugs traffickers. Uh, in Colombia. Well, in, at the height of his trafficking career, bringing you know all of this, and he pretty much had the UK covered up for himself. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. How much money was he personally making? I mean, did he have to kick up to somebody in the cartel, or uh, you yeah, know, how yeah, did that he worked, work? He worked for, for the uh, for the cartels, and um, uh, he would you know he would get money. Uh, from them, he always, he always had money. Uh, he, he kept the money in the stash houses. Uh, he had stash houses around London where he kept uh, the drugs and he kept the uh, and the money. And at one time, he had one stash house. Uh, he told me that uh, he had over fourteen million dollars in in there. And uh, 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 the money was just uh, incredible. Uh, he kept. He told me about thirty thousand dollars in his car. Uh, that whenever he needed, you know, loose change, he called it. Uh, he'd go to the car and, and do it. And uh, he 
he would go on vacation, for example, to uh, Spain. He, he liked Spain a lot, and he'd go there. And on a weekend, he'd spend a hundred thousand dollars, you know, for uh, for travel and all that. Then, so money was not um, was not a problem uh, for him. And um, um, uh, he got a percentage. You know, he sent the money back to um, to uh, to Colombia. Um, I mean, uh, the money back uh, on um, uh, the money laundering part of it. And um, and uh, he took a percentage, and uh, uh, the authorities estimated that over his career uh, he made a billion a billion pounds. Although um, Jesus is not is not sure that that figure is correct, but um, you know I'll take it <laughs> for the publicity. Well, was was he and his family able to live the high life like Escobar did, or was this you know was their lifestyle well, a little bit scaled back? Well, he tried to keep a low profile. That was one of the secrets of him. Nobody knew who he was. You know, he was a he was a Mr. Big, but nobody knew who Mr. Big was. Uh, he, he, for example, uh, uh, when he'd go out uh, and, and negotiate a deal with uh, with somebody that wanted to buy cocaine from him, he'd always tell them that he's working for somebody. He would never uh, never admit that he was the, the real Mr. Big. When he went out on the town. Um, he um, uh, would have one of his men pay for everything, like he was the real Mr. Big. So this was one of his, his secrets. They kept a very very low, low profile as a, as a drug trafficker, and nobody knew who he was. Um, and uh, you know, he, he he lived in a in a middle class neighborhood, Herndon, uh, of of London, and um, uh, you know. N- uh, it was it was a nice place, but it wasn't like extravagant, uh, like Escobar or some of the other big drug traffickers in Colombia, you know, lived in, and um, and uh, he, he never had he never had any problems, you know. And, well, and uh, I understand he had a policy basically of no violence, and he didn't even carry a gun. Yeah, which was really amazing. Uh, you know, he never carried a gun. He said that that um, if he was if he had if he would have stayed in Colombia. And worked from that end rather than the UK, he would have had to carry a gun, or he would be dead because it was so violent. But the UK drug law, uh, the uh, the gun laws there were much more stringent, and was and the trade was less violent. That uh, he felt he never had to had to carry a gun. You know, he he prided himself in his negotiating skills. He looked at, he looked upon himself as a businessman. You know, uh, he would. He would check it. He would check anybody that worked for him. He would check them out. You know, he would he would uh, he would do like a background check, like an employer does. You know, if you're going to go work for somebody in a restaurant, for example. And uh, he was very careful about about who he hired. Um, you know, he he was trustworthy. You know, he was a man of his word, which is a lot of respect in the um, in the drug trafficking community. And uh, he was somebody that uh, was willing to negotiate. You know, with somebody, and um, and uh, I thought it was quite interesting that he he basically he did treat this like a business, and he did um, you know almost like marketing research and background checks, like you say, and he he really kept everything on the up and up, just as if it was a corporation. Yeah. Well, Well, this is uh, what's what's amazing. I think the most successful drug traffickers. Are the ones that 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 treat their that treat the drug trafficking uh, enterprise as a as a business. 
on that. And, uh, uh, you know, he could have been a CEO of any major corporation because, you know, one time he had more than 20,000 people working for him, 20,000. They were doing all kinds of things like uh, handling money, laundering money in Colombia, moving drugs, um, you know, and um, uh, it takes skill. You know, it takes skill to operate at that level. Uh, well, was you know, this the uh, career path that he had intended all along? I mean, and after I, I well, just, you liked, know, it seems like he had it all organized and laid out to where, you know, this is this is the way it's going to be. Well, he he, he loved he liked the money. That, that 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 was the reason why he said he he was born relatively poor. Uh, he wasn't starving all that, but you know, he came from a large family. You know, ten brothers and sisters. Um, they had to struggle, and he saw the people in the drug trade, what they were making, and he, he decided at an early age that he wanted to do that, that he would eventually be one of those drug traffickers, you know, and enjoy the um, the lifestyle and the perks that come with it. Well, you know, looking down the road, how did he think that this was all going to end up? And, you know, with your experience never, in... You know, I, I asked, you know, I asked him that, and he said he always worried about that. You know, he always worried mm-hmm. about that because he was becoming too big, and he knew the the authorities knew about him. You know, and they were they were investigating him, and he did get out of the drug trade. Uh, he uh, picked off a lot of people in Columbia because uh, he was so valuable, but he said he got out of, he got out of it, um, and um, this was about six months before he was uh, arrested. Uh, and um, in um, and uh, uh, thrown in jail, so he was thinking about getting out, but he but it was too late, you know. And he was a little bit arrogant too. I think uh, he didn't think that the, he didn't think much of the British British uh, law enforcement, you know. He thought they were actually kind of stupid on that, and I think he underestimated them because I interviewed, you know, I have a chapter where I interviewed like four of them, four of the uh, law enforcement officers in Scotland Yard, and. Um, some of the other agencies, and uh, uh, they were they were quite sharp. I mean, you know, and and uh, it took about 250 men law enforcement, in law enforcement to bring bring Jesus down. That's well, how did he get they, caught? Was there a specific mistake he made that that kind of well, turned it, put him on the radar? It, uh, you know, it, the people turned against him. They were they were caught. Uh, he had a money launderer. Um, that uh, was caught, and he turned against him. And uh, eventually, they, they built up enough enough evidence uh, against him, and uh, and arrested him. Mm-hmm. Well, with your uh, you know background in, in interviewing, and, and actually, you wrote you've written things about a lot of other drug dealers and drug traffickers. Does anybody connected with that trade ever successfully retire and live to a ripe old age? That's one of the lessons of the book. Somebody asked me, you know, what's one of the lessons is that uh, crime does not pay. (laughs) Crime (laughs) does not pay. You know, I've done, uh, written on dozens of people, and they all get caught in the end. You know, now, uh, law enforcement is always slow in the beginning, you know, and they always outsmart them in the beginning, the bad guys. But the good guys eventually get up to speed, and they get on to them, and they have a lot of resources, and uh, the, the thing is, um, you might ask, why, why, why do they stay in the drug trade? Well, 
they got caught up, you know, uh, with the money. Um, it's dangerous, you know. Uh, if they get out, they, they made a lot of enemies. And uh, if they get out of the drug trade, they won't have that power. And it makes them vulnerable to getting assassinated. So, uh, uh, but you can count on one hand, I think, the number of, of people that got away with it. You know, uh, right. eventually in the end, in the end, they all get caught. That's why uh, one of the things that they say, what did you learn? I said, I'll never be a criminal. <laughs> you know, exactly. I'll never be a criminal because it doesn't pay. I mean, you'll enjoy, you know, it's a trade-off. You know, like, like, like you're, you're making a deal with the devil. You know, you're enjoying everything. You have all this money, the woman, everything. But eventually, law enforcement catches up with you. And you, and you go to jail for a long stretch. Well, after he was arrested, what happened to the rest of the organization? You said he had like 20,000 people working for him. Where did they all go? They, they, they just, somebody took his place. Um, you know, um, the Colombians are, aren't as active today. The Albanians evidently are, are, the, are the big force now in uh, British, British, the British drug trade. But, you know, they, they just go to somebody else. Somebody else, there's always somebody going to replace you, you know. And uh, look at Escobar. He left. The Cali cartel left. The Norte cartel replaced the Cali cartel. And uh, the Mexicans replaced the Norte Valley cartel. And it goes on and on. You know, as long as you have a demand, you're going to have somebody who wants to supply it. This is true. Well, what do you think Jesus' biggest regret about all this is, getting caught, or was there something else? The, the biggest regret he has and he's very vocal about this, and it comes out in the book, is that uh, he's, he um, sacrificed his family, you know, his time with his family. He spent 18 years in prison, and, he, and his son was just born. He was like two years old, and his daughter was uh, you know, going through an important part of her life, and he missed all those years, you know. He missed all those years, and he says that's the thing that he learned. You know, he, he put money and, and, and drugs uh, over family, and he said that, that, that was his big regret. I can see that. And what is he doing now? Now that he's, you know, served his time, he's out of prison. Where is he, and what's he doing? He's uh, he's relaxing. Uh, he he's thinking about uh, getting into the coffee business, um, and uh, he wants his book to be a big hit. <laughs> he wants a movie made out of it, and hopefully, you know, make, make some money so he can uh, he can retire uh, mm. comfortably. Yeah, I it mean, sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? <laughs> what do, it does sound like a great plan, <laughs> but you know, it makes you wonder what does a you know what does a drug cartel leader or a kingpin in the drug trade do after that is all over? So yeah, I mean, well, it, he's lucky he got it doesn't out. Doesn't look good on the resume. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, he's lucky he got out, and he only only served eighteen years. The right. amount of uh, cocaine. I mean, he really. If he, if he was, he was right about not, not not wanting to deal with the U.S. market, because if he would have got caught, he would have got maybe forty or fifty years. Wow. Know, uh, definitely. I mean, here in the U.S., I mean, a much tougher situation here, and to be out, which I think is, is relatively small amount of time, just eighteen years, is is pretty uh, pretty lucky, you know. And he's still young enough. He's only sixty-one. And, um, you know, he's still young enough to enjoy his life on, on that. So um, uh, let's hope he has a, a good rest of his life. 
Absolutely. Well, you know, the whole war on drugs, do you feel, with all of the experience and the interviews and the people that you've written about, is it really effective at all? And what are your feelings about legalization? Don't get me started on it. I mean, it's a total abject failure. You know the expression, stupidity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. They haven't uh, pursued a new policy. In, in the war on drugs since the beginning, since Nixon uh, really declared war in the early 70s, and then Reagan declared and reaffirmed it in the early 80s. And essentially it's, it's been focusing on on supply, you know. And uh, uh, But as long as you have demand, you're going to have somebody wanting to supply it. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, it's a total, totally wrong. I'm glad to see that uh, the drugs are, are being... Um, the drug laws are being liberalized. You know, marijuana uh, is being liberalized, which is good. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I personally, I would not want to see any laws. And people say, are you crazy? I said, no. I said, uh, it's never been tried before uh, here in the U.S., but in Europe, you know, in some places they've done it. And uh, it's worked. And, um, but it's, it's a, you know, it creates, I always say it creates a lot of, um, uh, positions for DEA agents, <laughs> you know, creates a lot exactly. of employment. You know, on well, that. And, and other other than that, we spend billions of billions of dollars, and there's no different result. It just continues, and you know, you hear what the kingpins, right? They 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 take them down. Escobar, big victory, but it's not a victory. Uh, only 15% of all drugs are ever confiscated by law enforcement. That means 85% of them get through. You know, and uh, um, it's uh, it's a total waste of time and a waste of money. The war on well, drugs. it amazes me that I... They should change the metaphor. It's not a war on drugs. It's a social problem. It's not right. a military problem. You know, drug, drug, drug abuse. And so they should change the metaphor because uh, when you say war on drugs, you, you imply that it's got to be a, a, a victor and a loser, you know, in that. That's very true. And I've I've never spoken with someone who felt like I do about drugs and legalization. I'm uh, like what you said, legalize them. People who do drugs are going to get them one way or another, whether it's legal, whether it's on the black market. It doesn't matter if they want them, they're going to get them and they're going to find them and somebody is going to supply it. So I agree with you on the money spent on this so-called war that's not making a dent in anything I I thought it was interesting um, the Portuguese model and what they're doing in Portugal are you I'm I'm sure you know all about that and what do you think about it I I vaguely know about about uh, about that but uh, it's it's been very successful I mean the the, the programs Um, Europeans I I was in um, I was in Holland you know and Holland's you know famous right for mm-hmm. being liberal towards drugs and all that, and I, I was given—I was writing an article about, about how they handle drugs. This was back in the '90s, and um, I was given a tour of the red light district by a by a, by, a, by a cop, right? And uh, uh, you know, uh, I said, "Why do you have, you know, you know, all this red light district? You know, it's—I said this would not be something you could you ever imagine in the U.S." He says, well, he says, you know, we, we put all, all the prostitutes in the area. 
they're, you know, we um, uh, make it legal. Uh, they have health tests, right, on that sort of stuff. Uh, there's no crime associated with it. And, uh, uh, you know, that was their approach. You know, rather than uh, try to stamp out crime, uh, you know, they, they live with it. They rather live with it. And uh, it's, it's effective. But um, I don't think that anything, something like that would ever, ever work here in the U.S., I know, and why? Why do you think that is? What is it? Is is that it? What What is it about the U.S. that uh, these kind of programs are never going to see the light of day? There's just too many differing opinions, and everybody has to be right, and whatever it is. But what is your feeling on that? Well, I think it's I think it's changing slowly. You know, I I think I think attitudes are changing. You know, I think most people want to see medical marijuana legalized, and they want to see recreational marijuana legalized. So I haven't, I haven't really given up hope of of, uh, of things changing, but uh, it's going to be slow. It's going to be a slow process, and uh, um, you know. But I think eventually uh, we'll come around, and we'll have something sensible in place. We can only hope, and I think that's you know basically the only thing that's going to slow down the drug trade that everyone is so afraid of, um, yeah. and you know closing borders and so on and so forth. And it definitely hasn't worked yet, so yeah, yeah. we shall see. Yeah, and look at you know, look at Colombia. You know, they, the country has changed dramatically in the last twenty twenty years. You know, you have many, absolutely many with the. The, the um, AR, our American Social Retired people had Medellin as number one um, destination for retirees, for U.S. retirees. Can you believe that? And that, you know, that, yeah, <laughs> that's fascinating <laughs> to even think about because you know you have that stigma in the back of your head, like you're going to yeah. go to Medellin and run into Pablo somewhere, or one of his yeah, goons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Pablo's, uh, you know, Pablo's hacienda is. Uh, Tourist traction now. I was going to say, I was going to ask you that yeah, whether I mean, there's like, a whole industry yeah, all around that money, Pablo. All that money, all that death, all that money, all that death, and for mm. what? Yeah. You know, it's, you know, just. Well, how so, many people go crazy. out to the countryside digging holes looking for all the money that he buried? Yeah, they, in fact, they had, a, they had a TV show about that. Yeah. Know, about finding, finding Escobar's money. In fact, I was, I was uh, approached about being a host on that show. <laughs> oh, and I, I didn't get it, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's ironic, you know. And um, it is. So, as an yeah, author, but, you know, by re- interviewing these people and researching and writing these books and and you know all of your other related projects, what what kind of things have you learned along the way? What has this taught you? You know, it's. I, I mentioned about about uh, you know, it's given me a, a, a deep respect for crime. <laughs> you know, I don't want to. You know, I don't want to be a criminal, right? On that sort of thing, I've, I've challenged myself. You know, I've um, like this project here. I mean, with uh, Jesus, uh, you know, I had to deal with. Uh, he was in in jail. He, he was in Colombia. I was here in the U.S. We had to deal with COVID, and uh, it worked out. You know what I mean? So uh, I don't underestimate myself anymore. You know, um, uh, I, I, um, 
I'm more confident towards towards projects. Uh, this project I have now, which is quite amazing, that I'm that I'm working on, my current project, you know, um, it has its challenges, um, but I'm confident that I'll be able to uh, to to work it out. Um, Are you at liberty to talk about some of the projects you're working on? Is I mean, how many irons do you have in that fire? Well, right now I've got I've got um, at least seven scripts that I'm trying to market. Uh, I've got five of my books that are optioned for movies. And um, I've got another book project that uh, I, I thought I'd never do another book. I'm going to do another one, I think, uh, which is uh, I'm really excited about. Uh, it's a prisoner, another prisoner, but this guy's in jail for uh, life plus 35 years. But uh, his story uh, is, is quite amazing. And um, I can't say anything more about it because um, I haven't signed a contract with him yet. But I've been uh, uh, negotiating with him, and I hope to have something soon on that so I can get started. Um, but it's an exciting time of my life, I, and I feel that um, uh, you know something really exciting is going to happen with uh, with one of my scripts or one of my books. And uh, this book, uh, The Real Mr. Big, is at a production house in in England, and they've had it for like two months. And I don't know what they're doing with it, but uh, they wanted to see it. And, uh, you know, maybe they, they, they'll be interested in optioning it for for a TV series or, or a movie. But um, every project I do now, uh, I do it with that in mind. You know, can it be made into a movie? Um, and um, um, that that is my probably my main, one of my main criteria for um for choosing a project to work on, because I get a lot of them. I get a letter from uh, from prison every every month. Somebody thinks they have a story. You know, they they killed uh, uh, some people and and made a lot of money from drugs, but ended up in jail for life. And they would think they have a story out of that. But it takes more than than just that to uh, to uh, to get me interested. You know, in, in writing a story, it has to be a, some kind of interesting angle. Like Jesus, for example, the refugee that came to the UK. And then, yeah, it's it's quite a story. The real Mr. Big is the title of the book. And um, where can we buy a copy now that it's it's been released? Well, it's been released. You can go to the um, the traditional spots, the Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It'll be available um, in the bookstores pretty uh, pretty soon. It should be it should be going out now. And uh, you can order it uh, from that. The subtitle of the book is Real Mr. Big, um, How a Colombian Refugee Became um, uh, the United Kingdom's Most Notorious uh, Cocaine Kingpin. That's the, sub- the subtitle of that. On that. And, and I the, have to say the, it was a fascinating read. I, I really think readers will enjoy it in the, in the way that you write it and, and, and a lot of – I'm not trying to give away the book, but a lot of it yeah. is conversations with Jesus, and so yeah. he was a you know his words are a very big part of it. Yeah, yeah, it was it was, it was fun to do, and mm-hmm. um, I was really uh, nervous because uh, you know uh, I had to do um, I had to go back to him uh, after that. I spent that twenty or thirty hours in. Um, Doing the taped interviews in uh, in Columbia, I had to go go back to him uh, during the the writing of it, and I was nervous about that. But it worked out, you know. He he, uh, he wrote out stuff, and um, 
uh, his English is is, uh, is pretty good, but I had to you know, rewrite stuff. I'd ask him questions about certain parts of it, and then I'd fill it in. I'd give some background, you know, on on uh, the uh, cartels or the history, you know, the background, what he was doing, and uh, but it worked out. And uh, um, I appreciate your kind comments about it. Oh, it was. I appreciate you letting me read it ahead of time. <laughs> so yeah. I, I really, I did enjoy that. So, how do people get a hold of you? Where do we find you online? Well, I'm uh, pretty active on Facebook. They, they can uh, send me um, uh, a Facebook um, message and uh, just mention that uh, you were on the sh- that you heard from me on the show because I get a lot of them, and there's a lot of spam stuff, you know. Uh, right. Yeah, which you got to be really careful of, and um, just just put a note there where, where you came from, and then um, I can do that. Uh, I tweet a little bit. I don't tweet as much, maybe as I should. I am a writer on that sort of stuff, and uh, I got a, I got a crime I got a radio show, uh, Crime Beat. Uh, it's on the Artist First Radio Network, and I've been it's been on since uh, uh, January 2011, and I interviewed all kinds of crime people on there and you can connect there if you want and um, I have a we- I have a um, um, website uh, www.ronchepsik.com Chepsik is spelled C-H-E-P-E-S-I-U-K dot com Thank you so much this has been just a fabulous conversation today and I, I really can't say enough about the real Mr. Big I I just thought it was fascinating and it was a great read. So thanks so much for coming and thank you everyone for tuning in and please follow Imagine Publicity on air wherever you're listening to this podcast for future episodes.